Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On a beautiful September night in 2008, a young couple went out for dinner in downtown Calgary. On their way home, the couple stopped at a park and sat down on a bench to soak in the warm, late summer air. Around them, the trees were changing colors. Never once did it cross their mind that it would be the last time, as a couple, they would see those vibrant fall colors again. Last night, one of our worst fears as a police service came true. An innocent bystander was seriously injured as a result of a shooting incident in our city. Mr. Warawa would pull the trigger and have no remorse and no concern about the individuals he was shooting. And he was like, I don't care, I'll shoot, I'll shoot the police too if that's what it takes. He calls to me because um, he was let go, right? And, uh, and yeah, I don't wish this to anybody. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, one man's story of survival and inspiration. This is Hope in the Darkness. This story begins in South America. Jose Neto grew up in Brazil in a very close-knit family with his parents and two brothers. Jose, who prefers to be called Neto, has always loved being out in nature. At 14, he learned to surf and the ocean became his second home. After high school, Neto studied international business at university in Brazil, and English was a major part of that program. In early 2008, he decided to immerse himself in the language by traveling to an English-speaking country. Canada was his top choice because of its beauty, stable economy, friendly people, and because it's a safe place to study. Neto was 24 years old when he arrived in Calgary with his girlfriend, Roberta. He describes the first few months as an exchange student as some of the best of his life. Everything was going as planned. His English was coming along, he was making new friends, and he was seeing the breathtaking beauty Alberta has to offer, including the mountains in Banff, Jasper, and Lake Louise. On September 16, 2008, Neto and Roberta went out to dinner in Chinatown. They took their time walking home that evening and passed through Circle Park, an inner-city green space built on top of an underground parkade. Neto and Roberta stopped and sat down on one of the benches to soak in more of the warm September air. Moments later, Neto's world went dark. Neto could hear Roberta scream for help as pain shot through his head. He felt the blood on his face and heard sirens. Neto couldn't understand what was happening, but his thoughts were consumed with fear. As he was rushed to hospital in an ambulance, 
he wondered if he was dying and if those would be his final moments. Out of the chaos and in the days that followed, a clearer picture of what happened started to emerge. Here's Calgary Police Chief at the time, Rick Hansen. Last night, one of our worst fears as a police service came true. An innocent bystander was seriously injured as a result of a shooting incident in our city. Neto was hit by a stray bullet. It turns out that at the same park and at the same time that Neto and his girlfriend were sitting on a bench, there was a fight between two other couples over a cocaine deal and a phone. One of the men involved in the argument pulled a revolver out of a sock that was stuffed in the front of his pants. He pointed the gun at the man he was fighting with, who was standing a few feet in front of him. He fired one shot, but the bullet did not hit the person it was meant for. Instead, it struck Neto, who was sitting between 30 and 40 meters away from where the shot was fired. As Neto lay bleeding, the shooter ran away. This victim, a young man from Brazil, living and studying in our city, has been permanently blinded as, and is in hospital far away from family and friends. Back in 2008, there was a lot of gunplay on Calgary streets, most attributed to two warring gangs and a spike in drug activity. Police worked around the clock to track down the person responsible for shooting Neto. What became critical for investigators were witnesses who provided information about what they saw that night. There were several people in the area when the shot was fired, and they told police they saw a man leave in an early 90s light-colored Lexus. Thankfully for police, that was a rare vehicle in Calgary at the time, and incredibly, their system came up with only one match, one registered owner. However, the vehicle was known to be driven by two people. The owner, along with an associate who had accumulated a few traffic tickets while driving the car. Court documents detail police surveillance at two addresses connected to the vehicle. On September 18, 2008, less than 48 hours after the shooting, police watched as a man left a home in Northeast Calgary and got into a light-colored Lexus. They followed him to Motel Village in Northwest Calgary, where he parked the Lexus, went into a store, and then got into a taxi. Police noted it appeared he was carrying something resembling a wig, and he had a backpack with him. Officers used a small, explosive, distracting device outside of the taxi while the suspect was inside. The device created loud bangs and sparks. The suspect reacted by leaning back and raising his hands up over his face. That's when the Calgary Police Service tactical team moved in to make the arrest. Court documents note that when police searched the backpack, the wig turned out to be a stuffed toy rabbit with a revolver hidden inside. The man arrested was 30-year-old Roland Ashley Warwa. He was no stranger to police. It turned out he was in and out of jail his entire adult life. Meanwhile, Neto was still in hospital, 
The bullet injured his right orbital area and right orbit, then traveled through the nasal bones and entered his left eye. Doctors determined his left eye could not be saved or repaired, and an attempt to repair his right eye was not successful. Neto lost both of his eyes, resulting in complete and permanent loss of vision. He underwent numerous procedures to repair his eyelids and facial lacerations and had ocular prosthetics made for him. Just 10 days after he was shot, a press conference was held at Calgary Police Headquarters. With his parents and his girlfriend by his side, Neto spoke publicly for the first time. I think they really tried to to take my vision back, but uh, when I woke up in another day of the surgery, they said, I oh, would took off uh, your both eyes. Yeah, I got some uh, mad, like, uh, not mad, but sad. I gotta learn everything, so it's pretty harder than I thought because I'm lying now completely and I can't go, for now, I can't go to the washroom alone, so that's, uh, that. It makes hard. Neto described how he felt the night he was shot. I had my plans, like uh, the most of people in the world. It's like someone, uh, it's like someone took my plans and just um, mix it up or just, uh, I don't know, erase a little bit. I just heard something loud and I felt something something in my in my head and then I couldn't see anything I said uh, hey look at me look at me and tell me what happened she said I think it was a shoot and I said oh really I think I'm gonna die <laughs> and she said no you're talking to me I was saying I'm gonna be blind I'm gonna be blind his girlfriend Roberta also spoke about the fear and despair she felt. It's very fast. I, I had no time to see nothing. Uh, I just remembered he was asking, I heard a sound. I have no idea that it was a shoot of a gun. When I saw the ble- bleeding and then I was completely crazy. And then I start to ask uh, for help, praying and crying and thinking, thinking that, asking for God to help us. And he did because he is with us. When I'm sad, if I'm getting sad, I'm always thinking he's here, he's here, and he's here. Neto also shared how his parents flew to Calgary from Brazil to be with him during this difficult time. And they came and just just told me that everything is going to be all right and I'm here, I can hug you, my son. And uh, don't worry, we are here. We're going to do everything you need. I didn't know that I could cry because I haven't ties anymore. I just um, hugged them. 
Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Neto's case gained a lot of public interest, even making international headlines. There were two prosecutors assigned to the file. Uh, My name is Britta Christensen, and I've been working as a Crown prosecutor with the Alberta government since 2003. And I was involved in the Warawa file sometime in 2010, probably 2009 as well. And uh, at the time, I was the junior Crown on the file. Gord Wong, who's now a provincial court judge, was the, the lead Crown on the matter. The police investigation revealed Warawa shot someone else just days before he shot Neto. There was a conflict at a flop house where him and his friend had gone either to visit or maybe to do drugs. And he was offended by something that was said. uh, And so unexpectedly, he pulled out a revolver and shot someone in the stomach. As an interesting side note, the person who Warwa shot in the stomach did not originally report the crime or seek help for his injuries. He didn't even realize he had been shot. According to court documents, on September 4, 2008, 12 days before he shot Neto, Roland Warwa was at Robert Reitmeyer's home, consuming crack cocaine in one of the bedrooms. At one point, Reitmeyer asked Warwa to leave, so Warwa shot him in the stomach. When Reitmeyer went to bed that night, he realized he had a bullet hole in his lower abdomen. He called for an ambulance and was taken to hospital, where he underwent surgery to repair damage to his bowel and colon. Doctors were able to find the bullet and remove it. He was released from hospital several days later. Robert Reitmeyer was a well-known member of a white supremacist group. He has a number of swastikas on his face and chest, SS bolts on his neck, and the word skin on his forehead. Reitmeyer went on to kill someone in one of the most senseless murder cases I've covered, and I shared it on season one of Crime Beat. He was one of two men convicted of the second-degree murder of Mark Mariani, an innocent man who was stomped and beaten to death in an alley behind a Calgary strip mall in October of 2010. Just two years earlier, Reitmeyer could have died from the shot Warwa fired, a thought I'm sure has crossed the minds of Mark Mariani's loved ones. (laughs) 
Warwa was charged with one count of discharging a firearm with intent to wound, maim, disfigure, or endanger the life of Robert Reitmeyer, and one count of discharging a firearm with intent to wound, maim, or disfigure the man who was the original target of the incident that left Neto blinded. He was also charged with the aggravated assault of Neto, possession of a prohibited firearm, and possession of a firearm while prohibited from having one. But this case didn't go to trial. Instead, Roland Warwa pleaded guilty to all charges. In this particular case, the police investigation was really thorough. The witness statements were really thorough. Uh, and Mr. Warawa was represented by uh, competent counsel and he elected to enter guilty plea. So he didn't challenge the fact that he had in fact committed the offenses that he was charged with. And the only issue was the appropriate sentence. Warwa's criminal history would become a major factor in deciding his fate. You always get a person's criminal record when you get their uh, new criminal charges. And it was apparent that um, Mr. Warawa had uh, been in jail for a period of 10 or 11 years already, even though he was quite young at the time. According to court records, Warwa was sentenced to his first lengthy prison term shortly before his 19th birthday. I'm going to share details of some of the crimes he was convicted of. It's a long list of violent and disturbing crimes. In December of 1996, Warwa and an associate broke into a jewelry store in Edmonton. They stole over $57,000 worth of items. Then, just months later, while out on release from that charge and a few others, he showed up in Calgary. In February of 1997, Warwa and a partner broke into an empty store in a Calgary strip mall with a plan of breaking into the neighboring jewelry store. They cut through drywall and removed ceiling tiles, then got rid of their tools and returned a few hours later with semi-automatic guns. The next morning, Warwa and his partner went into the vacant business, then up into the ceiling to gain access to the jewelry store. That same morning, the shop owner went inside disarmed the alarm and turned on the lights when he heard a noise. He was confronted by Warwa, who was masked and wearing a toque. The owner yelled and screamed for help. That prompted someone in the area to call police. But the robbery continued. The owner was pushed to the floor and dragged to a room that held the shop safe. His hands were bound with plastic wrap handcuffs. Warwa ordered the owner to open the safe and threatened to shoot him if he didn't comply. They got jewelry from the smallest safe and pushed the owner to open the others. In the meantime, police arrived on scene, and that's when Warwa shot the owner in the neck. Court documents reveal the victim fell to the floor and played dead. The two robbers fled the store by going through the false ceiling, then pushed away an air conditioning unit to crawl onto the roof. They escaped the jewelry store after shooting 
the owner. And then um, as police were giving chase, Mr. Warawa uh, faced off with a police officer and shot at the police officer as well. That jewelry store owner survived, even though he was shot in the neck and the police officer wasn't shot. But there was this pattern of behavior of um, indiscriminately and impulsively shooting at individuals that was deeply concerning um, for the Crown. The $44,000 worth of property stolen from that store was never recovered. Warwa pleaded guilty to a long string of charges, including attempted murder, unlawful use of a firearm, break and enter with intent, and robbery with a firearm. He was sentenced to 10 years for the attempted murder and an additional year for the use of a firearm, and he was given a 10-year weapons ban. With credit for time already served, he had 10 and a half years left to serve in prison. Court records state Warwa spent 20 months or 600 days of that sentence served in segregation as discipline for institutional violations. On the eve of his 26th birthday in May of 2004, Warwa was granted statutory release. And for the next few years, he was in and out of jail for crimes committed while in custody and while on release. He was convicted of assaulting a peace officer and caught possessing narcotics in prison. In 2007, at age 28, he was again granted statutory release with special conditions that included no illicit drug use. About a month later, he tested positive for cocaine and returned to prison. His warrant expiry date was February 19th of 2008. Less than seven months later, he shot Reitmeier and Neto and was about to be sentenced. But given his long criminal history that included violence, the prosecution had a few options on how they could proceed. So usually when we have someone who's charged with a criminal offense, um, there's a, a standard range of penalties uh, and a minimum and a maximum sentence or no minimum, but a maximum sentence. Um, and so in this case, Mr. Warawa, among other things, was charged with discharging a firearm at um, two individuals. That's um, the guy he hit in the stomach and then um, the man he meant to hit when, he, when the bullet went astray. So I think the sentence for that those charges on their own would be 14 years. When they commit a serious violent offense and they display a pattern of behavior um, for similar types of offenses that endanger the public, and, and particularly like risk of bodily harm or death, um, the Crown can and the court can impose two other types of sentences on them. And that is um, if they're found to be a dangerous offender, you can impose uh an indeterminate sentence, so essentially a life sentence, and it's the parole board who's going to determine whether or not they're ever fit to be re-released into society. Uh, and the other option is that they can become be declared a, a long-term offender, and uh, they can be subjected to a, a 10-year jail sentence with a longer period of supervision after that. The designation of dangerous offender is only given to the most violent criminals and sexual predators. You know, sometimes they talk about the criminal justice system as having a catch and release aspect. There's a lot of people that are 
in and out fairly regularly, but there's a difference if you're in and out for thefts or if you're in and out for serious violent crimes. And so um, the dangerous offender legislation tries to capture individuals who show a pattern of repetitive or persistent aggressive behavior um, where you've got that in the past. And Mr. Warawa had several examples of that. It's very similar to a life sentence, even though it's not referred to in that way, it effectively is a life sentence. So it's going to be exceptional for someone to have a pattern of really serious offenses that are going to be such that they attract our attention to doing this kind of application. It's not something that's uh, easily done by the Crown in the sense that um, there's a lot of resources that go into these applications. The process of having someone declared a dangerous offender is a lot like a trial. A hearing takes place, evidence is presented, and a judge decides whether a dangerous offender designation should be imposed. There's a a test that the Crown has to meet to prove that somebody is in fact a dangerous offender. Uh, The legislation had just changed when we did Warawa, and so if the court um, was satisfied that we had proven uh, the person was a substantial risk essentially to reoffend in a violent manner um, and cause serious bodily harm, uh, then the court was required uh, to label the person a dangerous offender. And then the court had the option of an indeterminate sentence, a long-term offender um, designation, or just a regular sentence. Uh, But the presumption was it would be an indefinite sentence unless uh, the defense could show why it shouldn't be. You know, the only difference really between, if you think about um, someone who's commit, convicted of first-degree murder, they'll get a life sentence with no parole for 25 years. Um, a dangerous offender will get an indeterminate sentence, which is also a life sentence, but there's no specification with respect to when they're entitled to apply for parole. When a dangerous offender gets an indeterminate sentence, it'll depend on how he performs Um, in custody, what programming and treatment he takes, how he behaves and complies with um, the rules in the jail setting and what uh, expert, as in psychological, psychiatric um, assessments are once he's in that setting. And um, yeah, the timing of any kind of parole is, is undetermined. I reached out to the Correctional Service of Canada to get the number of dangerous offenders currently serving sentences. From 1978 to 2020, there have been a total of 1,014 dangerous offender designations made in Canada. As of 2020, there are 860 active dangerous offenders in Canada, 662 with indeterminate sentences, and 198 with determinate sentences. In this case, Warwa was sent for a psychiatric assessment. In doing that, we want to give all of the information to the assessors, the team of assessors, which included a psychologist, psychiatrist, and a social worker, um, all the background information we can to um, round out the assessments that they would do, his custodial history, his um, any information that we had obtained um, really that related to his behavior and his criminal behavior. Um, so they reviewed all of that, did Uh, their standard assessments and then produced a really lengthy report um, detailing his uh, psychological psychiatric profile, uh, his future risk of reoffending, and the likelihood that treatment would be successful. Uh, And then that was returned to us and to the court. 
During Warwa's hearing, a forensic psychiatrist testified that he had tremendous support from his mother and sister that was consistent from his childhood, but said he also had a strong propensity toward delinquent peers. The psych assessment and forensic psychiatrist's findings would become key evidence in the hearing. His conclusions in a very summary form were that the primary diagnosis for Mr. Warawa was that he had antisocial personality disorder with narcissistic personality traits and uh, that when they did the risk assessment tools, um, it's kind of a standardized testing, that he was also a psychopath in that um, he presented as callous, selfish, remorseless, and socially deviant. And that tended to be, uh, that diagnosis was a potent predictor of general and violent recidivism. Um, so that drove the, the prognosis that he was likely to reoffend. The prosecution said there were several examples of how those issues played out when he committed a crime. Mr. Warawa would pull the trigger and have no remorse and no concern about the individuals he was shooting. Um, you know, in the case of the jewelry store owner, that wasn't someone that he had any animosity towards other than um, the jewelry store owner didn't provide him with a safe combination. Um, and so it thwarted their efforts to uh, rob the jewelry store. But at one point, his co-accused said, you know, I think you shot him or aren't you concerned? And he was like, I don't care. I'll shoot, I'll shoot the police too if that's what it takes. And then... Finally, there was a, also an additional comment in Dr. Hashman's conclusions that uh, Mr. Warawa had a long-standing and significant opiate dependency with psychological dependence as well, so a significant entrenched drug addiction. Defense argued Warawa's criminal behavior, including shooting two people in September of 2008, was insufficient to designate him as a dangerous offender. But the judge disagreed. On October 21st, 2010, just over two years after Neto was shot and blinded, Roland Warwa was declared a dangerous offender. It's equivalent to and maybe even more serious than first-degree murders. I mean, this individual had fired on four different individuals. It was only um, good luck that none of them had died and that these weren't first-degree murder charges. But uh you know, happily, there is that legislation in the criminal code that says we don't have to wait until he actually kills someone before we take more significant action um, in protecting society from somebody like this. Uh, so it, he ended up with the most serious sentence you can get, which is a life sentence or an indeterminate sentence. And um, in a lot of ways, there are people charged with first degree murder who've only fired one shot at one person. Um, and this is more significant. At the time, Neto expressed relief in the judge's decision to give Warwa an indeterminate prison sentence. I always thought that uh, the police and the judge, uh, they, you know, they know what they're doing. And, uh, and I think that was the, the best decision, I think, because, you know, we can feel safety uh, on the streets in Calgary. Following the decision, Neto invited me into his home to share how he was relearning things that Warwa had taken from him. He played guitar and sang a song that spoke to his commitment to staying positive. 
Your plans, uh, the things that you like to do, uh, like everything, like is raised. Like a walk around, that's so hard. Like walk and uh, the sidewalk, and uh, that's why I'm playing because it's the unique thing that I I can do it, uh, city and playing and. I've stayed in touch with Neto over the years. He married Roberta, who has been by his side every step of the way. I also attended the ceremony where they became Canadian citizens. And then I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. It's it's very emotional because it brings you it brings you back to when I first came and had no idea how Canada was when everything happened and finally becoming citizens is that's kind of a it's very intense. Canada take my sight away, let's say, but it brought back hundreds of new and exciting and good things. No hard feelings. I love this place. Canada actually, it's always been part of us and now we, we are part of Canada. Not long after that, Neto and Roberta became parents. So we got our citizenship uh, in in 2014, and she was Roberta was pregnant at that time, and then we found out about Lise, went to Brazil, um, told everybody there. It's good. I, I love it. I, I was playing Barbie this morning, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, I was, yeah, I was playing dolls and. In 2018. Ten years after he was shot and permanently lost his vision, Neto again invited me into his home where I met his little girl. He had exciting news to share. He had just opened his own business. I picked massage because I thought it was something I could totally do. And I met this great friend and we got talking and he's a massage therapist and he lost his sight when he was very young. So I got inspired by him and and I thought it would be a good bridge uh, for me to uh, for me to get to do what I like to do, which was always taking care of people and working with uh, with energy and healing and that kind of stuff. It's just not only massage, but I'm teaching workshops and and uh, and meditation and mindfulness and all that stuff. Neto is an incredible inspiration and worked hard to reclaim his life. People see me very active and very independent, having working work and running a business, couple businesses, teaching and and you know, I I greet my clients, get them, book them, um, talk to them, I teach courses and but you know they see me around the house and. Even my friends, closest friends, they don't realize sometimes that I do have challenges. And I think that's the hardest part is, um, 
you're trying to be independent, not to show people that you can do it, um, but because you're trying to, to be independent. You know, you try not to need everybody all the time, but also that make people think that you don't need help. And sometimes we do need big help, you know, moving or, or you know, just doing uh, daily things. Um, and I, tr I try to do that as much as possible so I don't overload Roberta and taking risks is good. I feel good when I do that, especially when there's that little bit of fear. Um, it's, I feel that I'm doing the right thing. It's something that after, you know, after becoming blind, the life taught me that, uh, you know, if you don't, if you don't risk, you won't learn the, the way. And, and being blind is, is that. You face that every day, every time when you go from, you know, the kitchen to the living room and then it goes on and on. So every time, you know, small uh, tasks uh, can be risks that are being taken. Neto remains positive despite the adversity. It becomes your life. Uh, you get used to that mindset. Your brain gets going and, and of course you have frustrations. And, and, but, you know, after a while, you just embrace that challenging um, mindset and you actually start liking it. It's like going to the gym or doing a sport. You, you really embrace, you know, overcoming your own records and your own, uh, yeah. It's like you're trying to do something that you really want to do, but then you have so many other things because, you know, every, you know, you, you would take a lunch, you drive to some place for 10 minutes, you have it all in your hands. And, you know, for me, it's different. I have to plan it all. I have to get it all. So um, there are some uh, frustrating things in life. Yeah, I tell people that there's two ways um, after you go through a challenging trauma, there's there's two ways in front of you. One is the positive and one is the negative. And the negative is very wide and nice and you can go and jump and run. And the positive pathway, you're looking ahead and you see that little tiny narrow path, um, but it's prettier, you know, it's nicer because it's got flowers and all. And, but it's harder to stay on because it's so narrow. So you have to focus, you have to go. The negativity, the depression, you know, it's, it's wider. It's easier to walk on it, but it's dark and it's cold. So um, you, have you have chances and you have, uh, you have options. So 50-50, what are you going to pick? I pick positivity. Some people in Neto's situation might hold bitterness or anger towards the criminal who stole so much from him. But Neto chooses not to. He cost what he cost to me because um, he was let go, right? And, uh, and yeah, I don't wish this to anybody. And maybe, you know, there is a possibility that he would do it um, if they let him go. But, uh, you know, the only thing I can do is just carry my life and, and not really spend much time or energy thinking about that. I should note, an indeterminate sentence doesn't mean an offender will never be released. It very well could mean that, but there are opportunities for a dangerous offender to present that they've changed and no longer pose an undue risk to society if released. According to documents obtained by Global News, 
Warwa was granted day parole for the purpose of receiving treatment in 2019, but was taken back into custody in early 2020. In the spring of 2022, I attended a legislative review of Warwa's case via a video link. The review was mandated by law to determine if he should be released on either day or full parole. It was a lengthy hearing held over two dates, one in February and one in March. Warwa told the Parole Board of Canada that much of his criminal background can be attributed to addictions and said he's been an addict for over 20 years. He said, quote, to be honest, I was so high all the time, I didn't think, end quote. He went on to tell the board that he's been clean for over two years. Warwa spoke about the night he shot Neto. He said, quote, I was shooting and I missed my target. And here we are with a blinded, innocent bystander. It was just a dumb, cowardly action that I did. Warwa told the board that during his time in prison, he's addressed a lot of his risk factors and said he, quote, just wants to live a life and be successful. He might be interested to learn that while in prison, he got married to the woman he was with the night he shot Neto. They now have two children together. Warwa told the board he has secured employment and wants to build a life with his family. He said, quote, I know it's not going to be easy and I need help and I want the help. He has completed several programs, including a violence prevention program, a substance abuse program, and a violent offender maintenance program, and has attended both AA and NA meetings. But psychological assessments indicate the now 40-year-old remains a high risk for reoffending. The board noted he has a tendency to minimize some of his behaviors, including an incident with a woman in 2020. A warrant of apprehension was issued for Warwa while he was out on day parole. A complaint was made that he, quote, made sexually explicit and inappropriate advances towards a female staff member while she was working alone at night, end quote. Warwa told the board it was an exaggeration. They noted he has a pattern of minimizing instances where he used drugs or broke rules, raising concerns about his insight into the triggers, behaviors, and thoughts that contribute to his offending. When he was released on day parole in 2020, he had a positive urinalysis test. He admitted to using Shatter, a high-THC marijuana derivative, before leaving the institution. He said he did it because he was depressed, because it was Christmas time. In covering this review, I learned that Warwa sent a letter to the board in January of 2022 requesting that media not be permitted to observe the hearing. At that point, I had already confirmed my attendance and he would have been notified. In his letter, he suggested the media's presence would, quote, adversely impact victims, members of a victim's family, and members of his own family. He went on to write, quote, 
The media's presence would adversely affect an appropriate balance between the public's interest and in his effective reintegration, and that the media would skew the mood and present information that may override the progress he's made, end quote. However, the board determined that the public's interest permitted me to attend. I was the only journalist at the hearing. In a written decision, the board said, given he is a high risk to reoffend, he needs to cascade through temporary absences, work releases, and minimum security before conditional release. The board stated, quote, it's sheer luck he hasn't killed anyone. However, they added his progress outweighs concerning factors. They denied him full parole, but granted Warwa day parole for a period of six months. During that time, he'll reside at a halfway house and has a list of conditions to follow. Warwa is to abstain from drugs and alcohol, have no contact with the victims, keep up with treatment for substance abuse, and seek counseling to address issues with violence and reintegration. As of the release of this episode, Roland Warwa is out on day parole. I need to tell you that I spoke to a lot of people as I put together this podcast. Many of them asked not to be identified because even though the violence Warwa committed against them happened many years ago, for some decades ago, they still live in fear of him. And it goes beyond the victims. There are witnesses to the crimes who fear for their safety. These people told me that fear, the impact of his crimes, will never go away. Jose Neto chooses not to think about Roland Warwa. The last time he did an interview about the man who shot him was back in 2018, when Warwa was first seeking release. Here's what he said back then. Yeah, why would I have this person in my life? Why? Like, there's no reason. Because if I think of him, he's part of my life, and I, I don't want to. You know, um, people ask me if, um, if I, if I uh, would ever forgive him. And thinking of that someday, I thought um, that I don't, I don't, I don't give it a face, you know what I mean? You know, the police does, the judges do. And, but I, I myself, I try not to give what happened to me a face. So I don't think much about forgiving because I wasn't fighting with anybody. I wasn't arguing with, with anybody. I was just walking with my girlfriend after dinner. I still stay in touch with Neto and let him know Warwa was released on day parole this spring. And while he doesn't think about the offender, every day he's reminded of the impact. In a statement Neto wrote for the dangerous offender hearing, he said, the beauty that he used to see is now all black and dark. He will never see the ocean again. He will never see his child's face or the leaves as they turn for the seasons. That image remains one of the last he saw. And while his eyesight was lost that September night, 
Neto didn't lose his positivity. He's a light to everyone he meets. I don't know, it's, it's nice to be a tool of, um, of inspiration, you know? Sometimes I'm just on my own walking around, around my, the building where I work and people stop me and, hey man, you know, you inspire me. You know, like, see, and I didn't do much. I just carry, um, carried life, right? So it's nice to be that element of inspiration for people even, even when you're not thinking about it. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the VP of Content and Distribution and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV. 